Okay, good morning everyone. Okay, it's good to see all of us here today. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Fathers, we come before you today. We thank you for your word which speaks so powerfully of your son Jesus. And we just pray that this morning, as we come to your word, you will clear away the cobwebs from our minds or the tiredness or distractions uh, to really once again meet with Jesus and to see uh, who he truly is and the wonder of what he comes to do for us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, now, if you go to uh, any uh, dinner party or a function or some sort of, uh, you know, just gathering, uh, usually when you meet a new person, uh, you know, they'll come in uh, the first few minutes, you'll say, okay, what do you do? And, you know, and uh, what job do you have and things like that. So I remember one time, uh, I, I happened to be in Vietnam, actually it was on a, a mission trip as well, and uh, I think it was in Ho Chi Minh City, and I, I happened to meet up with a church member who was from in Singapore but had gone to to, to Ho Chi Minh City, and, and, and I, when I went to this gathering, I met this guy. And this guy uh, said to me, Oh, uh, I'm the CEO of this really big company in Vietnam. And I was like, Whoa, right, okay, you must be someone really important. Then he went to tell me how his, um, he was so successful in business that actually his uh, business success was being studied in some of the MBA schools around the world. Uh, so by that time, I was getting a bit skeptical, or I was like, surely not, right? I mean, like, who, who, who do you think you are, right? And I, I guess that, that's what happens, right? Sometimes you meet people and they make very bold claims, they say things about themselves, and you think, is that really true? Can that really happen? Well, I think that if we come to the book of John for the very first time, where we study about Jesus Christ, I think there is a sense in which when we see some of the claims of Jesus, some of the things that are claimed about Jesus, there is a sense where we sit back and say, whoa, is that really true? Right? Can these things really happen? Because last week when we looked at the very first part of the book of John, up here, there were huge claims about Jesus. Alright? Jesus, it was claimed, was with God and was God. He was with God from the beginning and all things were made through Him. Uh, he was the Word that became flesh, who made His dwelling among us and His glory was the glory of God. He came to bring us true light, to give us life, and to make us born of God. Now, on the surface of it, if we were to read the book of John for the very first time, we would think, is that really true? Can that really be so real? I mean, can these huge and awesome claims really be true? Now, today, as we look at uh, the rest of chapter 1, from verse 19 to the end, we are really looking at four days. Okay, If you look at uh, the section... Uh, chapter 1, verse 19 to 28 is one day, then 29 is the next day, 20, 35 is the next day, and 43 is the next day. So really, you're looking at four days in the past, 2,000 years ago sometime. And these four days, in a sense, show us the reality and the truth of these claims of Jesus, or what He's come to do, and who He is. So let's look at day one. Day one. So in verse 19, now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Now here we see that the story of Jesus doesn't begin with Jesus himself, but begins with John, John the Baptist, John the one who comes baptizing. Now, it's probably the reason why the authorities from Jerusalem, which is was the religious capital of Israel, came to visit John and to ask him, what are you doing? Because baptism, which seems very normal and commonplace for us today, uh, people do it all the time in, in churches, and even in the video we saw, among the Hmong, uh, there was baptism. 
But among the Jews, uh, 2,000 years ago, in Judaism, baptism was not a practice that was practiced at all. Okay, you didn't go to the temple to be baptized. You didn't go to the synagogue to be baptized. Baptism was not something that was widely practiced or even taught in the Old Testament. So these religious leaders came to John the Baptist and asked him, you know, why are you doing this thing? You know, who gave you the authority to baptize? And, 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 you know, where did you get this idea of baptism from? And they asked John, uh, whether he was one of three people. In verse 20, he says, he did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Now, all these three characters are basically characters which are, for the Jews, associated with the end times. Okay, associated with the end times where they foresaw that God would do something fantastic and save his people, the Jews, once again. Now, the Christ literally means Messiah in Hebrew, which means anointed one. Now, all through the Old Testament, people were anointed by God to do specific things. The kings, the prophets, uh, the priests, but specifically the kings were anointed with oil and anointed with the Holy Spirit by God to, to do God's will. But by the end of the time of the Old Testament, there was a great expectation that the Christ that would be the once and for all king, which would bring glory back to Israel and save Israel from her enemies. So at this point in time, Israel was ruled by the Romans. So the obvious questions for the religious authority to John the Baptist was, are you the Christ? And he said, no, I'm not. Another end time person was the person of Elijah. So if you look up here, right in Malachi chapter 4, there was a promise. Uh, Malachi is one of the last books of the Old Testament where God says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day the Lord comes. He'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. And again, this is another end time prophecy where before God himself comes to, to judge the people, he would send the prophet Elijah. Again, John the Baptist says, No, I'm not Elijah. So they ask him, lastly, Are you the prophet? Now, if you notice here in the Bible, he, they don't say, Are you a prophet? He says, Are you the prophet? And again, the prophet was somebody who in the Old Testament was prophesied to come once again before the end times would come. So Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. But John the Baptist says he is not. He is not one of these big end time people that they were looking for, Elijah the Christ or the prophet. But instead he says, who are you then? Right, give us an answer that we can take back to those who sent us. Who, what do you say about yourself? And in verse 23, John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way for the Lord. Now here we see that uh, uh, John the Baptist actually sees himself as uh, someone who is actually preparing the way for the Lord God. Okay, So this quote comes from Isaiah chapter 40, and uh, it's actually a visual picture. If you go back and read Isaiah 40 of uh, like... Uh, using the imagery of road building, right, like the PIE or the BKE, right? 
where you know you got to level the hills, straighten the path so that you can build a straight road to make it easy to travel. But here, God is not talking about a, a better LTA system, right? But it is actually leveling paths in preparation for the final return of the Lord. So John the Baptist says that his role, right, is actually to prepare the way for the Lord God himself. But he will not shine the spotlight on himself, you see. Because actually, in other parts of the Bible, in the other Gospels, uh, Jesus actually says that John the Baptist is like Elijah. Because Elijah was the one who prepared the way for the Lord to come. But I think John the Baptist doesn't claim that title for himself because he doesn't want the glory. He doesn't want the spotlight to shine on himself, but rather, he wants the spotlight to shine solely on Jesus Christ. And why does he want the spotlight only to shine on Jesus Christ? Because it says here in verse 26, I baptize you with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He who is who comes after me, the straps of those sandals, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, if you think about it, right, so these are like Roman sandals, the things that people used to wear in those days. They're not thinking of slippers, okay? Okay. Now, in, in, in ancient Israel, uh, you know, only the lowliest of the lowest slaves would untie the thongs of your the, the, the master. It was just something that was seen to be beneath the, the, the dignity of slaves to do. Uh, I know that my um, even in, in the modern world, uh, I guess in our modern sensibilities, anybody here have maids, uh, domestic workers? You, you do, right? I presume any of us who have domestic workers. Any of you ever ask your maid or your domestic worker to take off your shoes for you? No, right? But I do know that my dad was telling me once when he went to Manila, how he went to the house of a very, very rich man. And, uh, they went to his house and the man's, they went to his house and the man sat down on the chair and my dad asked him, what are you waiting for? He said, oh, I'm waiting for the maid to take off my shoes. And, and my dad, who's seen many things in life, he, uh, he found that quite distasteful because he thought that, you know, why should you get some other human being to take off your shoes. It seems like it's beneath, beneath you, right? But John the Baptist regards himself as not even worthy enough to take off the, 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 the untie the sandals of the person coming after him, which is Jesus Christ. Now, why should that be? Why should the great John the Baptist, right, who in other parts of the Bible is regarded as the greatest of the, the prophets in the uh, in the time before Jesus, why should he regard himself so lowly that he can't even untie the laces of Jesus? Well, come back with me to chapter one, verse fifteen, right? Because this is a phrase that John the Baptist keeps repeating over and over again, as we will see. So, if you look in the Bibles, John says in chapter one, verse fifteen, John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, "This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me." has surpassed me because he was before me. So what is really being said here is that John sees himself as not worthy of untying the sandals of Jesus because he sees himself as creature as opposed to God. Right? It's like if you're just a creature, then 
it's like, how can you even consider untying the sandals of God? It's like, God is so much higher and greater than us. He, he is unapproachable. And that's the way that God, I mean, sorry, that John sees his relationship to Jesus. He doesn't see himself as an equal, right? That, you know, we're both humans, but you just happen to be the CEO and I happen to be the slave. No, he doesn't see it that way. John sees it as a different plane of existence. John sees Jesus as God and he as creature. And that's why he is unable to see himself as being worthy of untying the shoes of Jesus. Now, I think that as we come to this first section, remember the question we asked was, can we really believe the claims of Jesus Christ? Can we really believe what is claimed of Jesus Christ? And I think that as we look at this passage, we have to see that part of why we believe in Jesus is because we believe in John the Baptist. Right? I remember sometimes when you read, uh, you know, on articles or you go to the history channel and you say, talking, articles talking about Jesus or programs talking about Jesus, they always look at Jesus as if he's just some isolated person in history. Does Jesus exist in and of himself? Did he do all these things? But actually Jesus doesn't exist in himself. He comes as part and parcel together with John the Baptist. If you disregard Jesus, then you must disregard the testimony and the life of John the Baptist as well. But how amazing it is, isn't it? Because if just Jesus, one person, comes in history, we are able to see, oh well, it's just an isolated, random incident. But if you have two people come in history, one who prepares the way for the other, then how much more can we say, well, actually, it is not a a chance, it's not a fluke, but it's actually part of the plan of God. That God sends John the Baptist first to prepare the way in a very clear, in a very transparent way before Jesus comes on the scene. That is not chance, that is not coincidence, that is not accident. That is part of the plan of God. So let's come to the next day. So the next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him. And he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Now, again, what John says is really radical. Okay, like, you know, people use the word radical in a very loose way now, but what Jesus, what John says to, at this point is really, really radical. Because he, he calls Jesus the Lamb of God. Now before, John uh, the Baptist had identified Jesus as, as the Christ, right, as God. Remember, he was the one that came before me. Now, usually when you think of the king, when you think of someone powerful like God, you, what image do you use to associate with power and kingdom? So you think like, you know, if you ever go to castles in Europe, or you go and see, you know, like uh, shields, or what people put on their crests, or on their flags. Well, the, the image of kings and power and royalty is things like tigers, eagles, right, lions, bears, right. I don't know why the New Zealand just chose a kiwi, right? That doesn't make sense to me, right? But but those are the images associated with power and kingship and Christ and, and royalty, right? 
But, but the first thing John the Baptist says when he sees Jesus is, look, the Lamb of God. Now, a lamb is not a picture of power. It's not a picture of, of, of victory and supremacy. Right? Even for ourselves, when you think of lamb, it's a picture of meekness and, and, and vulnerability. But all the more for the Jewish people, when, whenever you said the word lamb, they would have a very specific idea because every year they would remember the Passover lamb. Okay, so that was the first image that would have come to their mind, right? Okay, so the next slide. Oh, that's right. right. So what was the Passover lamb? Okay, the Passover lamb was what the Jewish people did every year to remember when they sacrificed the lamb, they remembered in the past their national day. Okay, that's how they remember their national day. They didn't have fireworks, right? They killed lambs, okay? Because what happened then was on that last great miracle, God told all the Jews to kill a lamb so that the angel of God would pass over their houses and not kill the firstborn, but they would go and kill the firstborn of all the Egyptians. And after that miracle, the king, the, the Pharaoh let the people go. So every year the Jews would, they would remember the Passover lamb by doing the same thing. Now, when John the Baptist says, hey look, there's the lamb of God, that's the image that the Jews had. Lamb, Passover, substitution, uh, avoidance of God's judgment. But then he goes on to say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, the, the, the sin of the world taken away by Lamb is a very strong image of uh, something spoken of in the book of Isaiah. Right? So, in the book of Isaiah, which I think we read in our um, responsive reading to begin with, talks of a, a, a person who gives himself over like a lamb for the sin of people. So in verse 7, it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. So here when you talk about lamb, right, it's a very clear picture, right? It's, it's, it's like lamb as a substitution so that I don't die, I don't face God's judgment. Lamb who is given for transgression and sin so that he will bear the sins of mine as a substitute. Now it's crazy, isn't it? Because how can you conflate or mix up those three titles together? God, Christ, Lamb. Right? It, it, it's like, they're all, you know, it just how do you put them all together? It's amazing that you can, one person can have those three titles. Well, we'll see as we go along how that works out, isn't it? Now, we said before that actually, uh, John the Baptist's coming was very significant because he points to Jesus. But how does he point to Jesus? Well, Jesus is identified to him in a supernatural way. Now, it's not just John the Baptist coming, using his imagination, you know, looking at Jesus, and saying, hey, you know, Jesus, I see the big L on his forehead. He is the Lamb of God, right? Obviously, you all don't get the reference, but actually, if you read, if you, if you actually read some Christian 
charismatic people, they say that when they look at people, they can see the forehead, there's some sign there, right? But, but I don't believe in that. And that's not what John the Baptist does, right? But if you look at what John the Baptist does, he sees something supernatural because he was told from God to expect something. In verse 32, um, it says, John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me, which was God, right, we know, sent me to baptize with water and told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize the Holy Spirit. I've seen, I testify that this is God's chosen one. See, John, when he was baptizing, baptized, but he was always keeping his eye out for what God had told him would identify the one that was going to come, who was going to be God, the one in whom his was not worthy to untie the laces of his soles. And that would be a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit coming on this person. Now, when you look at the Old Testament, uh, many times the Holy Spirit comes on people to empower them to do specific things. But not necessarily is it a visible phenomena. Right? I mean, it's not a very normal thing. If you look at the whole of the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit comes down visibly as a dove upon someone. The reason was not because for the sake of Jesus, so Jesus could look up and say, oh, the Holy Spirit is coming on me now. The reason why the Holy Spirit visibly manifested himself to come down on Jesus was as a testimony to John, and as we know in the other Gospels, for other people. It was one of the signs to show people that Jesus was God, was the Son of God, was the Lamb of God. Now this is very important, isn't it? Because John the Baptist says in verse 34, I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Now what the, is being used here is the words of a witness, right? Seeing and testifying are the words of a law court. You see something and you testify to it. See, if you see something and you choose not to testify, then you are actually uh, a, a delinquent witness, right? You should actually go to court and testify about something, but you choose, maybe you're scared of the mafia or something, not to testify. If you don't see something you testify, then you're a false witness because you're saying that you saw something when you didn't see it. But here, John says that he sees and testifies about something he saw. And that makes him a honest witness. He's a reliable witness. And that's why if you come back, being back to verse 6, right, of uh, the book of John chapter 1, verse 6. I don't know whether it's up there or in here. Is it up there? No? Don't have, huh? Okay, so chapter 1, verse 6. Oh, it is up there. Okay. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. Now, I think this is really, really important because it shows us that our faith in Jesus is based on truth. It's based on truth. Now, why do I say that? See, sometimes people come up to me and say, oh, you know, 
prove to me that the Bible is true or prove to me that Jesus is real. And what they really mean when they say prove to me, they mean prove to me scientifically. Right? So a scientific uh, proof is where, uh, I, I, I mean, I, I shouldn't do this on my phone, but let's say I get my phone and I drop my phone a little bit, so not very far. Okay? <laughs> so I get my phone, I drop it. That's a proof that gravity exists, right? So I prove things in a scientific way by repeating an, ex- an experiment. But the way we prove the existence of Jesus, the way we prove that the Bible is true, is not by doing a laboratory experiment. Because the truth of the Bible is not scientific truth, but it's historical truth. It's historical truth. So a few months ago, uh, I had a car accident. Uh, I can't prove scientifically that I had a car accident, but I got my insurance claim, right? Uh, I got my car repaired, I didn't have to pay for it. Why? Because I could prove that it was true I had a car accident. Because I had witnesses. I had my wife with me, I had Colissa in the back seat, I had Edney in the back seat. Right? So, how do you prove truth? Well, you can't prove it scientifically, but you can prove it in the court of law, or you can prove it in truth because of eyewitness testimony. I can't recreate my car accident, but it, I can prove that it's true. And that's what John the Baptist is doing, isn't it? He sees and testifies not just to Jesus, the person, but the supernatural, uh, I guess, eyewitness of the identity of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit comes on him and resides and remains on him. Now we come to the next three days, uh, next two days, the day three and day four. In the next uh, two days, uh, day three and day four, uh, we see the disciples, the first disciples, coming to Jesus. Now you notice here, in each of these incidences, really there are three incidences, okay? The, the, the first incidence, where there is um, the first two disciples, uh, and uh, they, they come to Jesus, and, and notice what happens in verse 37. Uh, when the first two disciples heard John say, you know, this is the Lamb of God, they followed Jesus, and turning around, Jesus saw them following us. What do you want? And they said, Rabbi, teacher, why, where are you staying? He said, come and you will see. And so they went and saw where he was staying, they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Now, I think this is quite interesting, because the, this idea in verse 39, come and you will see, is actually repeated, in verse 46 with uh, Nathaniel and Philip, right? Because in verse 46, he says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathaniel asked, come and see, said Philip. So the first disciples of Jesus didn't just come to Jesus and uh, accept, you know, straight away. But they came and they saw. They came and they asked questions of Jesus. They came and they investigated Jesus. And after they came and they saw, they believed and followed Jesus. See, I remember watching a a TV program the other day about cults. You know, cults, religious cults. And about some of the the techniques that cults use. So, you know, some of the techniques that cults use is they, 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 they get people together and they use a lot of mind control techniques on their followers. So, they use peer pressure and isolation. So that there's a threat of where you leave that cult, you, you, there's, there's isolation and peer pressure upon you. Uh, there is 
the use of spiritual experiences, so a lot of singing, a lot of singing, people get hungry, they get into sort of some trance thing. There's a lot of mind uh, altering things where they change the way people take perspective of the world so that they, they, they control the, the, the people's destiny. But you notice here that these disciples, the early disciples of Jesus, didn't come to Jesus because Jesus was a cult. Right? We don't see them chanting or singing. We don't see them starving themselves. We don't see them going to a trance. We don't see them uh, taking any drugs or something, right? Or we don't see the, you know, like, uh, like Jesus trying to do some mind control techniques on them. They just come and see and talk to Jesus. And when they come and see and talk to Jesus and witness what he does, they recognize him for who he is, for as the Christ, the Lamb of God. Now, I think one example of uh, what happened when they came and saw Jesus was found in verse 43 to 50, isn't it? We're not sure what exactly the first two disciples talked to, spent the whole day talking to Jesus about, but we do have a record for us about what Nathaniel and Jesus talked about. Okay, so what exactly did Nathaniel and, and, and Jesus talk about? Well, let's have a look. In verse uh, 44, Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Sorry, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now here we see that uh, Nathaniel, when he is first approached by his uh, friend Philip, he's not uh, warm towards Jesus. He doesn't say, yes, 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 I believe Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ, the Lamb of God. But what happens? In fact, Nathaniel is very antagonistic towards Jesus. Right? You, he's prejudiced and biased towards Jesus because Jesus doesn't have the right pedigree. He comes from a small town. He comes from some obscure place, right? Uh, maybe we have no actually there's no obscure places in Singapore, but but maybe like Pulau Ubin or something, right? Okay. So when he comes to Jesus, he really is not favorably disposed to Jesus. But notice what Jesus says of Nathaniel in verse 47. Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now what he's really saying here is that he recognizes that Nathaniel is coming to him with no secret agenda. He, he's not coming to Jesus with a closed mind, but he's coming to Jesus with an open mind, willing to accept the possibility that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Lamb of God. There is no deceit, there is no hidden agenda in him. Then when Nathaniel actually comes 
to Jesus, open to the possibility of who Jesus is, Son of God, Christ, Jesus tells him uh, what to him is a very astounding miracle. I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, I guess to us, we don't think that's a very, very impressive miracle. Right? I mean, how impressive can that be? I mean, one look at Facebook, I know where all of you are, you know, during the week already, right? But it was a really big deal because it showed supernatural knowledge that only God had on the part of Jesus. He could see what happened before Philip actually spoke to Nathaniel. So the reaction of Nathaniel in verse 45 when he says, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel, it's not some sort of over-the-top, you know, over-enthusiastic response of a person. But it's someone who's actually coming to Jesus with an open mind, open to the possibility of who he claims to, to be, and actually experiencing Jesus, coming and seeing Jesus, and coming to faith in Jesus. But Jesus promises more, right? He, in a sense, promises in verse 50 and 51 that they will see even greater things. And I want you to pay attention, right? Because in verse 51 it says, Very truly I tell you, you will see, right? But if you see the you, you there, uh, if you've got proper Bibles, I don't know if you have your iPhone, whether you have footnotes there, but be- besides the you, you, there's a little footnote which is D, right, for mine. And actually the words you, they are actually plural. When he says, I tell you, he's not just speaking to Nathaniel, he's speaking to Philip, he's speaking to Andrew, he's speaking to other disciples. He's saying, all of you, as you come to me and travel with me, you will see even greater things than just me being able to know and see things which only God can see. He says, you will actually see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now again, because we know that this is written to Jewish people, the book of John, this is obviously a, a reflection on what happened in Genesis chapter 28. So in Genesis chapter 28, Jacob, which is the one of the great forefathers of the nation of Israel, he actually goes out and he goes to a certain place and he uh, takes a stone and he lies down to stay and he has a dream and his dream is exactly what Jesus talks about. Right, he saw a stairway resting on the earth with his top reaching to heaven. The angels of God were ascending and descending upon it. And in verse 13, God reaffirms the promise that he gave to his father Abraham and Isaac, that he will be blessed. So what Jesus is really saying here is that the confirmation, the sign which confirms the identity of Jesus in what Jesus sees, they will see more and more and more of to the rest of their time with Jesus. That Jesus, this doesn't, isn't just a, a once-off, you know, one-hit wonder sort of thing. But as they go with him, they will see even greater things. And these greater things will affirm and authenticate who Jesus really is, right? So their faith in Jesus is not some sort of like a mystical experience. It's not some sort of, sort of a cult experience. But it's actually based on what they will see and hear and experience with Jesus. Now, as we come to the end of this section, uh, when I was preaching this and I was thinking about, uh, you know, why, why did, why did John record, you know, the, the last two days for us? I mean, Jesus seeing Nathaniel sitting under the fig tree, was that really such a big deal? I think it's recorded for us because it's an invitation to us as readers, right? 
if you're sitting here today and you don't believe in Jesus, are you a person which Jesus will say, here truly is a Singaporean in whom there is no deceit? Are you willing to come to Jesus Christ with an open mind and not a closed mind? Are you willing to come to Jesus and explore fully, come and see Jesus and see Him for who Himself, who He is Himself? That He's the Son of God, that He is Christ, the Lamb of God. Because at the end of the day, uh, what we've read today is confirmation from John the Baptist who was sent ahead of Jesus. Confirmation from the Holy Spirit from heaven coming upon Jesus. Confirmation from the early disciples where they saw Jesus do miraculous things. See, the promises of Jesus actually tell us that we will see so much more, greater things than even this. That by the end of it, you can't help but say, yes, Jesus must be God. Jesus must be Christ. Jesus must be the Lamb of God because He does all these things and He says all these things and people are able to see His true identity. In conclusion, I remember um, talking to uh, a friend of mine uh, when I, I went to holiday in Switzerland many, many, many years ago because my uncle lives there and uh, I managed to get free housing which cuts, cuts down the cost of holiday in Switzerland a lot because you know Switzerland is a very expensive place for holiday. Anyway, I... I, I I found it very hard to share with uh, my, my uncle and his wife there. But it just so happens, actually, do you know there are Swiss missionaries in Singapore? They run a household in, uh, in Pandan Valley where many of the Swiss missionaries' children live there and they go to the Swiss school in Singapore. So I, I had known some of them in the past and some of them had gone back to Switzerland. And uh, I went to visit one uh, during my time in Switzerland. Because, you know, the Swiss railway system is really efficient. So it's really easy to get around. So we, we went to visit them. And he was saying that, you know, the problem with the Swiss is that they, they, they like to insulate themselves from all the worries and troubles of the world. Right? Because they're, they're so rich. And, you know, they're surrounded by the mountain alps and everything. You know, they think they, they live in heaven sort of thing. Um, but he said that at the end of the day, uh, Jesus Christ... Uh, is such a great thing that they cannot insulate themselves from Jesus, right? Because Jesus is the Christ. He is God who comes into the world. He's the Lamb of God who takes the, 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 the sin of the world. How can you, in your, in your wealth and your prosperity and your comfort, insulate yourself from God? You can't. He must invade our lives. He must invade every part of our lives because He is so great. He is our maker. He is our light. He is our life. So as we come to this passage, all the more when we see, you know, the evidence of John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit, the early disciples, uh, let us truly uh, marvel at who Jesus is and allow Him uh, to control every part of our lives and to, to really overflow into all our lives and not reserve any part and keep any part away from Him. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before You, we pray that we will learn from the example of Andrew, Philip, Nathaniel, that we will come to Jesus with no deceit, that we will come to Him and see. And by seeing, we will see the identity of Jesus, that He is your Son, He is Creator, He is Light, He is Life, He is the Lamb of God, He is Christ. Dear Father, help us to follow Him, 
because we know of who he is. Help us to see that even the great John the Baptist saw himself not worthy to untie the, 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 his sandals because he rightly saw that he was just a creature before his maker. Dear Father, fill us with the wonder of the person of Jesus and how he has come to come to meet with us and to die to save us from our sins and help us to believe in him. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.